Hey everyone, before we get started, I want to acknowledge that this has been a difficult couple of weeks here in the United States for many of us. But for our Black and Indigenous citizens, it has been a rough few centuries. My goal with this episode is to lay out the case of Breonna Taylor as we understand it today, give a few thoughts of my own, but then elevate the voices of those who know more than I do. The show notes on this episode will contain links where you can find education, not on the case, but on systemic racism in the United States. I'll also leave a few of my favorite Twitter accounts that have helped me learn and grow. It's not their job, it's not their responsibility to provide all that free education to me, but I am thankful for them. To my white listeners. If you find that your own understanding of what is going on is lacking, or you feel uncomfortable with it, but you don't know why, I recommend leaning into that discomfort. Listen to Black Americans about their experiences and keep an open mind. All of those links in my show notes are just a click away. To my Black and Indigenous listeners and other listeners of color, I see you, I hear you, and I welcome your input on how I can do better. Now on with the show. In March 2020, 26-year-old Brianna Taylor was shot to death in her home by people she thought were intruders. It turned out they were the police, serving a controversial no-knock warrant. When the basis for the warrant and the actions of the officers that night were put under scrutiny, many were left wondering if Brianna's death was an officer-involved shooting or was it murder? I'm Charlie, and this is Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. This week, I decided that the best use of my platform, being that I am a true crime show that tries to look behind the headlines, is to delay my planned episode and instead release a short episode covering a recent case, the death of Brianna Taylor, which occurred when officers entered her home on a no-knock warrant. Brianna was killed in March, and the story didn't blow up the way it may have had it not happened while all eyes were on COVID-19 news. Her family's attorney has also suggested a gender bias was also at play. Regardless of the cause, many of us are hearing the name Brianna Taylor for the first time now in conjunction with the death of George Floyd and the overall discussion of systemic racism in policing. So it's probably a good idea that we jump into it and cover what we know happened. It's hard to discuss something when we don't know the details. I know some people think I'm political on my show, and those people probably are not listening to this episode anyway. Yes, Politics intersects with true crime, and I cannot pretend otherwise. If you want a show that just gives you the story and doesn't get into the issues, there are a lot of really great shows out there. I listen to them. I am also one of those shows most of the time. But when there is an issue to discuss, I am willing to discuss it, and I understand that is not for everyone. That is fine. 
I will say, though, that I get the most feedback about being too political when I discuss systemic racism. And to that I say, systemic racism is a fact. It is not a political stance. It is agreed upon by people a lot smarter than me. It is understood by politicians and policymakers on both sides of the aisle. The political debate lies in what to do about it, not whether or not it exists. Okay, so with that out of the way, I want to start by saying we don't have the full story on what happened to Breonna Taylor because the investigation is still ongoing. This is a case that will always and forever leave us with some questions. But a lot more of the information will come out in the future, and I will definitely look into doing a full-length episode when all the internal investigations and the FBI review is done and hopefully made public. But let's build our foundation now and jump into what we know. Brianna Taylor was a 26-year-old certified EMT and ER technician in Louisville, Kentucky, keeping busy as the COVID-19 crisis was growing. She worked in two area hospitals, and Kentucky's governor had already started social distancing and shutdown recommendations, including school closings. So that tells you where we were in mid-March in Kentucky. Brianna was up for the challenge. Her ultimate goal was to become a nurse. So this all-hands-on-deck medical crisis was within her training. Her family worried, of course, since who knows how many patients coming through the ER would be COVID-19 patients, but this was her job and her passion. And Brianna knew what she wanted to do when she finished nursing school. She was going to buy a house, settle down, and start a family. She was 26 and had a clear path through life that she was actively working to make happen. And while Brianna was working hard, the Louisville police were also working hard on a drug case. The investigation was an ongoing one starting in January 2020 when a poll camera was placed at the intersection of South 24th Street and Elliott in Louisville. The camera was looking at a particular house that the detectives had identified as a drug house. This wasn't some Sherlock Holmesian deduction. That exact house had been raided in late December 2019, where drugs and guns were found. A week later, they had a tip that drug sales had begun again. As soon as the camera went up, the police observed cars coming and going from that house. The cars would drive up, the occupants would go in, not stay for very long, and then leave. We're talking 15 to 20 cars in the first hour, so yes, looks like a drug-selling situation. But the police weren't interested in the buyers so much as the sellers, so they kept watching. Two of the men seen at the property with some frequency were Jamarcus Glover and Adrian Walker. The investigators began surveilling both men, particularly through that camera, and Detective Joshua Janes saw them run between a rock pile 
on the property line and the house periodically. He also noticed that when neither of the men were at the property, no one stopped at the house. He deduced that they were not the buyers and were rather the sellers. On January 16th, Detective Janes saw Jamarcus drive to Brianna Taylor's apartment building. He entered her apartment, but he did not stay very long. When he left, he was carrying some sort of package. Jamarcus got into his car, and he drove to another house on Muhammad Ali Boulevard, which Detective Janes noted in an affidavit, this was a known drug house. He also said he saw Brianna Taylor's car at the house on Elliott Avenue, where he believed drugs were being sold, though nothing said he saw Brianna. There's no indication of who was driving her car. Jamarcus and Brianna did know each other. They had dated in the past, but we're talking at least two years before this. They remained friends after their breakup, but more casual. Her family referred to them as passing friends. Because Detective Jane saw Jamarcus pick up a package at Brianna's apartment, he was suspicious of this. He said in a search warrant application that he verified with the U.S. Postal Inspector that Jamarcus was getting mail at Brianna's address. He wrote that his training and experience told him that drug traffickers would use other addresses to avoid detection, and he believed that Jamarcus may be receiving and or storing drugs and possibly money from drug sales at Brianna's home. The idea that Brianna would gamble away her entire future to help an ex-boyfriend hide drugs doesn't track. But this is what the police suspected, and they knew nothing about Brianna as a person. They did not question her, they did not investigate her, and she had no criminal record. To the police at this point, Brianna was pretty much just a name attached to her address and her license plate number, plus she knew Jamarcus. One of the most hotly contested parts of this entire case comes down to the warrant application, and that affidavit Detective Janes submitted to support the search warrant. According to Detective Janes, the police verified through the postal inspector that Jamarcus Glover received packages to Brianna's home. And that's when the detective went on to say what his training told him about these packages. Brianna's family attorney has a statement from Tony Gooden, the U.S. Postal Inspector in Louisville, that says Louisville Metro Police never asked his office about this. It was a different agency that contacted him about suspicious mail going to Brianna's address. His office looked into it and concluded that there were no packages of interest going to Brianna's apartment. Gooden said it would have been unusual and inappropriate for the police to have gone to a different postal inspector and for that postal inspector 
not to have contacted him about it. This is literally his job and his jurisdiction. And here Gooden saying that he told an agency that nothing of suspect was going to Brianna's address. These supposed package deliveries were the probable cause for the warrant on Brianna's apartment. I read the affidavit. There was very little else here. It is not illegal to let someone use your mailing address unless it's for illegal purposes. And the inspector said there was no evidence of that. It's not against the law to go to your friend's house or to have him to your house. Even if he does sell drugs, you are allowed to have criminals for friends. The package is everything here. And the family alleges it was not accurately represented to the judge who signed that warrant. So we are already on questionable ground about if the police had a right to enter Brianna's home at all. Another issue with the warrant, it was a no-knock warrant. This means the police do not have to knock, they can just barge right in. This was based on the history of, quote, these drug traffickers, meaning Jamarcus and Adrian. They both had past records of drug offenses and were known to hide or destroy evidence, as well as running to avoid arrest. They were also suspected of having cameras at their homes, so a knock at the door would alert them and give them time to get rid of evidence or run out the back door. But what's Brianna's history? Absolutely nothing. She had no drug record, no previous interactions where she ran from the police, no arrests, nothing to say a no-knock warrant would be required for the officers to do their job. And that brings us to the next hotly contested part of this case. Did the police knock? Just because they had a no-knock warrant does not mean they did not knock to execute it. It was just an option for them. So let's get into what happened because we need to know what happened before we can discuss it. On March 12th, 2020, the police decided to execute these warrants on Jamarcus, Adrian, and Brianna in the overnight hours. They found Jamarcus Glover at his home. They searched and found drugs and guns and took him into custody without incident. After Jamarcus was in custody, the warrant on Brianna's home was executed. She and her sister shared the apartment, but her sister was out of town that night so it was just Brianna and her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker. Brianna was working the next day, so they were asleep at 1240 on March 13th, 2020, when the police arrived at the apartment. According to the police, who were in plain clothes and had no identifying way to tell they were officers, they knocked multiple times and announced they were the police in an attempt to get Brianna to open the door. It's only when that failed that they used the battering ram to enter. Brianna and Kenneth, like typical full-time employed people do on the weeknights, were sleeping. Even if it happened the way the police said, it's entirely possible Brianna and Kenneth did not hear them. 
In a statement Kenneth made early on, right after the incident, he said they woke up to a pounding noise and yelled out, who is it, and did not get an answer. Whether this noise was the police knocking or the battering ram, I think hopefully the investigation will tell us later. Kenneth and Brianna, thinking this was a home invasion, jumped out of bed. Kenneth grabbed his gun, which is one he legally owned, and kept for home protection, like a fair number of Americans do, and he also grabbed the phone and dialed 911. Everything happened very quickly after this. The police say Kenneth fired first. And after Kenneth fired his weapon, the police then shot over 20 times into the apartment. This is not what you would characterize as a controlled shooting, from what the family describes. There were bullet holes in multiple rooms, in multiple items in multiple rooms, in walls, in ceilings. And there was a bullet that went into an adjoining apartment where a five-year-old was sleeping. It's very likely that at least one of the officers shooting couldn't even see into the apartment from where he was standing. He was shooting from behind closed curtains. Of these 20-plus shots, eight of them hit Brianna. Kenneth was on with 911 and told the dispatcher that intruders had entered the home and shot his girlfriend. He still didn't know they were the police at this point. The 911 call is public, and I'll leave it up to you to go listen. You can find it online. It is rough. One of the three officers there that night, Jonathan Mattingly, was shot by Kenneth in the leg and did require surgery, but the wound was not life-threatening, and he will make a full recovery. Because he shot a police officer, Kenneth, who had just watched his girlfriend shot to death by people he thought were intruders, was arrested and charged with assault and the attempted murder of a police officer. So this is when we realize whether Kenneth shot first or not doesn't really matter. From the police perspective, you can't shoot at a police officer, period, even if they shot first. And from a defense standpoint, it doesn't matter either because Kentucky has a stand-your-ground law. This basically means that if you are somewhere you are legally allowed to be, like your home, and someone attacks you, you have no duty to flee, to de-escalate, or do anything else. You can stay and fight or shoot, and it's considered self-defense. So just entering Kenneth's home as an intruder would be enough legal justification in Kentucky for him to shoot first. So the real issues boil down to the warrant and if the police identified themselves. If the warrant was gained in bad faith and with bad information, the police were not in Brianna's apartment legally, and therefore Kenneth stood his ground. But if the police did announce themselves, they can make the case that Kenneth knew they were the police and decided to go down shooting. But why would someone who had no criminal record, no outstanding warrants, and no illegal drugs on him make that choice? He had nothing to gain and no motivation to attack the officers. 
And also, why would he call 911 to report intruders if he knew they were the police? Who decides to get in a shootout with the police and then calls more police to help him? Let's take a minute to talk about the officers who executed the warrant that night so we know their backgrounds. Of the three of them, two have less than spotless records. Officer Miles Cosgrove was suspended roughly two years after joining the Louisville Metro Police. It was back in 2006. He pulled over 57-year-old Arthur Satterley for being vaguely suspicious. He basically said the car looked like one that he had previously tried to pull over for suspected drunk driving, but I guess the car took off. According to Cosgrove, Satterley backed up at a high rate of speed after Cosgrove got him to pull over and approach the car. Then Satterley put the car into drive and began to drive away, making Cosgrove worried for his own safety and the safety of everyone else around. So he opened fire. In all, he shot into the car 11 times and he hit Satterley 7. Though in critical condition, Satterley somehow survived being shot seven times. Cosgrove also had some written reprimands over the years. He ended up getting another suspension for not showing up to a hearing. But I don't see reports of any other violent encounters. And he did have several accommodations in his record as well. The other officer, Brett Hankison, has complaints for excessive force in his record. He was even sued for it, along with other officers in 2012. He was dismissed as a defendant from the case. The incident commander that night at Brianna's apartment was Jonathan Mattingly, the one who got shot. He has a nearly spotless record. The only complaint on his file that's been made public had something to do with him not filing paperwork properly. He has a reputation for being a very good narcotics officer, but Brianna's family filed a lawsuit that listed numerous ways that the execution of this warrant, even if it happened the way the police said it happened, went against policy and procedures. One of the things I was curious about when I was looking at this case was, were there similar cases out there to see how they were handled start to finish? And unfortunately, we do have similar cases we can look at. One was just from October 2019. 28-year-old Atatiana Jefferson was babysitting her nephew overnight in Fort Worth, Texas, and she was up late playing video games, being the cool aunt. Around 2.30 in the morning, a neighbor called the non-emergency number, saying that she noticed the door at Atatiana's house was open, and she wanted to basically call in a welfare check in case it was someone who had broken into the house. When the two officers arrived, they walked along the outside of the house to check things out. Atatiana heard this noise, and she thought it was a prowler. So she pulled her handgun out of her purse and went to the window, where she saw someone lurking with a flashlight. Atatiana's gun was legally owned, and she did have a concealed carry permit. She was well within her legal rights in Texas to defend herself with a gun. When Atatiana got to the window, where she heard the noise, 
Officer Aaron Dean yelled at her to put her hands up and within seconds fired a single shot through the window. It hit and killed her. Dean never identified himself as a police officer, and he never gave her the time needed to comply before he shot her. The only reason we know how this went down is that we have Atatiana's poor eight-year-old nephew, who was on the inside of the house, and Dean's body cam footage on the outside. Dean resigned before he could be fired, and he refused to answer questions about the shooting. In December 2019, he was indicted for murder by a grand jury. The Fort Worth police had come out pretty early on saying that this was a bad shooting, that Atatiana was acting within her legal rights. So I think maybe this one did not become a boiling point in Fort Worth because there were consequences and accountability. The good cops were not covering for Dean. We have another case a bit older where the police were not only indicted, but they went to prison. In 2006, the Atlanta police executed a no-knock warrant on Katherine Johnston, a 92-year-old woman. She lived alone in a rough neighborhood, so Katherine kept an old gun around for protection. When the police cut her security bars and rammed through her door without identifying themselves, she fired one shot from her gun and did not hit anyone. The officers then unloaded 39 shots, hitting her six times. 39 shots, and they only hit her six times. This was not a situation they had under control. To illustrate that even more, some of the police officers were shot, non-lethally, by their fellow officers. In all this chaos that they created, they shot each other. It would be a Keystone Cops comedy sketch if we did not have this poor elderly woman gunned down in her own home. But the story gets even darker. It turned out the evidence used to justify the no-knock warrant saying that they bought drugs at her house was falsified. No one bought drugs from this 92-year-old woman. The officers doubled down by creating a cover-up, which fell apart quickly and they faced a number of charges. Out of the convictions and plea deals, manslaughter was the highest felony any of them faced, and most actually just pleaded out to conspiracy to violate Catherine's civil rights. They shot a woman to death in her home that they entered illegally. If anyone else did that, it would not be a conspiracy to violate rights issue. It would be murder. But this incident did bring change, and one change was that Georgia made it much harder to get a no-knock warrant in that state. Just like no drugs were found at Catherine's house, no drugs were found at Brianna Taylor's apartment. There was no secret stash of drug money. What the police found was some mail of Jamarcus's, but it was routine stuff. Just like the postal inspector said after he looked into it. He looked into it before they got the warrant, and the police found what he said they'd find, which was nothing. Now, I think the evidence points to Kenneth and Brianna having, at the very least, not heard the police announce themselves. 
It would have been safer for everyone involved if the police had been wearing uniforms and showed up during daylight hours when Brianna and Kenneth would have been awake and able to respond. The police chose the time to execute that warrant, and that is on them. Unlike with Atatiana's case, there is no body cam footage here of what happened, which would have answered our question about whether or not they identified themselves. I think there is a good chance that they did not identify themselves. The family's attorney investigating the case for them cannot find anyone who heard them announce that they were the police. Brianna lived in an apartment with adjoining units, and none of her neighbors, even those who may possibly have been awake at that time, heard the police announce themselves. In mid to late May, this case was building in the press, and the charges against Kenneth for assault and attempted murder of a police officer were dropped as the public pressure mounted. But these charges can be refiled. The Louisville Metro Police Chief Steve Conrad announced his retirement effective July 1st. Even though he didn't name Brianna Taylor's death as one of the deciding factors in his retirement, many believe the activists calling for his resignation did play a role. But Conrad did not have to wait until July 1st to take his retirement because the mayor fired him on June 1st after David McAtee was killed during the police response to the protesters in Louisville after the murder of George Floyd. The Kentucky governor asked for all police footage of the incident, and all of the officers claimed not to have activated their body cameras. Calling it an institutional failure, the mayor relieved Steve Conrad of duty effective immediately. Not turning on body cameras is a willful choice. We have the technology. If you have a body cam and you choose not to turn it on when things are escalating, I can only assume you don't want me to see what comes next. Let's get back on track to wrap this up. You may be wondering why Breonna Taylor's death is being presented as a race issue. It was a no-knock warrant presented on a home where the police thought drugs were being stored due to Jamarcus getting his mail sent there. At least one officer who shot into that apartment couldn't even see who he was shooting at. And this case is not necessarily about the officer's personal racial prejudices or their lack of them. This is about systemic racism. No-knock warrants are proven by research targeted on homes in predominantly Black and Latinx neighborhoods. Yet research has also shown us that drug use is not more prevalent in these communities. About 12% of drug users are Black. So why are we targeting no-knock warrants on 12% of drug users? All things being equal, they would be equally distributed among neighborhoods. Why are 12% of drug users getting arrested for drugs 38% of the time? So here's the breakdown on this case. No-knock warrants have been steeped and aged in systemic racism. The basis for the warrant for Brianna's apartment is being called out as a lie by the person in charge of inspecting mail. We don't know if the police identified themselves. It's a they-said-they-said they said situation. 
Kenneth and the neighbors say they did not. The police say they did. And the police, even though we know they have access to body cams, were for some reason, as far as we know, not wearing them. For me, as a human being, personal opinion, not legal opinion, I don't really think it matters if they announce themselves or not. It's clear Brianna and Kenneth never heard them. And the police could have foreseen that by looking at a clock and realizing that people sleep on Thursday nights because they work on Friday morning. This isn't a difficult concept. They specifically chose the overnight hours so they could catch people unawares. And that was their choice. We've seen in those other two cases that I've talked about the individual police officers being held accountable. When an officer does something wrong, they need to be held accountable. But in this case, let's say the police officers followed policy and procedure to the letter and this happened. Now what do we do? We change policy and procedure. That's what we do. The case of Katherine Johnston led to change. We need to see that happen more. I'm interested to see the findings of the FBI and any other agency involved in this, and maybe we are on the brink of that change, that change in policing. What would it look like if every officer-involved shooting that resulted in the death of a person was investigated by the FBI, an outside agency? Would we suddenly see an uptick in accountability? I don't have a crystal ball but we definitely see a difference in response when incidents are caught on camera, like with George Floyd, like with Atatiana Jefferson. If we increase accountability, we will see a change. We will see the good cops more motivated to oust the bad ones because they know they will be backed up, but we're not there yet. And all the changes in policy and procedure and how you enter our home and if we can have no-knock warrants, none of that touches the systemic racism that makes Black people two and a half times more likely to be killed by the police than white people, or 20% more likely to be pulled over by the police. The problem is not a few bad apples in the police force. It is the system. I think it's time for a lot of us to stop talking so much and listen more. Get on social media, search the hashtag Black Lives Matter, There is so much good information. So many people have great ideas on how to begin fixing this. I'm not one of them. And if you're not one of them either, I invite you to join me in talking less, listening more, but never staying silent. (laughs) 